I'm Sherry Sylvester, and this is Ninth in Congress. Conservative Texas values are part of the state's DNA, and politically that means that Texas has not elected a Democrat to statewide office since 1994. In 2002, Republicans finally gained a majority in the Texas House and have controlled both chambers of the legislature ever since. It started with the conservative victories of Governor George W. Bush, who led the charge in overflowing the personal injury trial lawyers who bankrupted the state with frivolous lawsuits and then bankrolled the Texas Democratic Party. Then Governor Rick Perry transformed the Texas governor's office to ensure that the basic conservative principles of low taxes, reasonable regulation, and fair courts prevailed throughout the state. Ray Sullivan was in the middle of that transformation and in many instances was key to making it happen. Ray has served on the senior staffs of two Texas governors and worked for three members of Congress. He's been involved in more than a dozen political campaigns, including three presidential races. He's a master of political messaging and working the hostile media. Ray is who I call for consolation when left-leaning reporters, which is virtually all of them, reported, repeatedly refused to report even a scintilla of fact. I want to talk to Ray today about how conservatives got here. What first caused Texas voters to reliably go to the right when they cast their ballots? What policies and issues did care, people care about in 2002 that they still care about now? And what challenges does he see to ensure that Texas remains a conservative beacon for America and the world? Ray, thanks you for joining us today Good at Ninth in Congress. Happy to be here. Good to be here. Well, before we talk about how Texas got here, give us a little bit about how you got here because you are famously not a native Texan. <laughs> I made the mistake one time of telling Rick Perry that I was born in New York City. He's oh. never let me forget it. But my my uh, my dad was a career CIA. Uh, employee. We moved around a lot growing up, so I spent a few years in New York uh, when I was birth through fifth grade, or sorry, five years old, and then uh, lived in Virginia, California, Taiwan, Korea, wow. uh, all over the place, but wow. ended up uh, finishing high school and going to college in uh, San Diego, California. Got involved in college Republicans in 1984. So you grew up in a Republican family? Yes. Um, it, my dad was a civil servant, of course, but um, he was uh, he was a YR, a young Republican, at a small school in New York, college in New York. So he uh, kind of had it from the beginning. Uh -huh. um, we actually spent the summer, I spent the summer uh, of 83 in Korea and went to the DMZ. Oh, wow. And saw some little guys with red stars on their forehead, on their hats, looking at me through binoculars, and it made me very uncomfortable. And I came back and joined College Republicans, <laughs> and that was the Reagan re-elect year, and uh, I got the, uh, I got, got it in my blood, and uh, started working on Capitol Hill shortly after I graduated. So California was red then, and Texas was blue. Right. I don't know what, I certainly uh, don't claim any clairvoyance there, but I've been extremely fortunate on many different fronts to get out of California when I did, which was um, roughly 1990. Mm -hmm. Ended up in Texas thinking I'd be here for a couple of weeks. 
uh, and the state just hit me right. It was um, it was conservative. It was affordable. People are super friendly. Um, it was a meritocracy, and um, I had opportunities that opened up uh, immediately after the first couple campaigns that I did, and ended up in Austin to. Uh, worked for Kay Bailey Hutchison's campaign in 1993 and mm -hmm. have been here ever since. And she was running for state treasurer. She was running for U.S. Senate oh, in a okay. special election. Okay. Um, Lloyd Benson had been uh, elevated to U.S. Treasury Secretary uh, and right after Clinton got elected right. in 92. And um, she won a, a very crowded primary, or it wasn't a primary per se, it was a special election. It went to a runoff between her and Bob Kruger, who was a former member of Congress that uh, Ann Richards appointed, and she blew the doors off that campaign. Highly disciplined, excellent campaign. And that's what introduced me to folks like Karl Rove and Karen Hughes and George W. Bush. And uh, I'd known Carney from, from the presidential campaign in 92, but a lot of great folks uh, were involved who were still active and friends of mine today. Well, how did she win it? It was still, Texas was still blue. I would say... Or what may be purple. Uh, right there, but. It, it, she was just incredibly disciplined. Um, you, you'll appreciate this as a communications person. The last couple of days of the campaign, we're on a bus tour. And I noticed all the news media who covered the tour back in the good old days when they would send people out on uh -huh. a bus tour. And you would have a bus tour and go into little places like Carthage and and Athens and all kinds of little towns around the state. Um, and the press could recite her stump speech. And that's when I knew this thing was over. Mm -hmm. um, obviously she was a different, um, different from the rest uh, as, a, as a successful woman. Uh, she'd, she'd been state treasurer. Um, and uh, Richards appointed a very weak um, boring uh, candidate. I think you know, she she could have appointed tougher folks like John Sharp, for example, was in the mix back then. Mm -hmm. Sharp had apparently had a history of uh, having pro-life feelings and that DQ'd him from her appointment. So she she appointed a weak candidate and she and Hutchison was, strong, disciplined, uh, the party all came together. Uh, Phil Graham was super involved. Um, we had George W. Bush and Rick Perry campaigning with her. Um, but I would attribute it mostly to discipline, to uh, focus on issues that were important. Keep in mind that Clinton had just become president and was going down some really bad trails with um, some social issues, some a lot of pork barrel spending, and she seized on that and uh, and won handily in the, in a special election. And I, and I feel like it really kind of broke the back of the Democratic Party. I mean, even though um, you know, Bill Clements had come before and, and George W. Bush won the next year, um, she was a, 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 not to, be stereotypical, but kind of broke the glass ceiling for Republicans and, frankly, for women mm -hmm. uh, candidates sure. in the state. Um, and uh, it was a big deal. So Clinton, like Biden, 
ran. I mean, he was a new Democrat, if you remember. I remember this very well because right. I was a Democrat at the time. He was a new Democrat and had promised that he would govern as a moderate. And then when he came in, he he did exactly what Biden did, which was uh, uh, kowtow, take a knee to the, the left. And, and, yeah. uh, and that was helpful in moving Republicans forward in Texas. Yeah, and, you, and you've seen that in presidential election years. Um, Republicans tend to do much better when there's a Democrat in the White, White House, mm-hmm. Republicans in Texas. Um, you know, most of, uh, not most, but a number of Rick Perry's campaigns um, were when Obama was in the White House, and uh-huh. that was uh, the gift they kept giving, uh, <laughs> politically speaking. Um, and it was, you know, it was a bit more challenging uh, with Republicans in the White House because it was, you know, frankly, a little bit more difficult to run against um, bad policies or questionable policies that were coming out of D.C. when the uh, the occupant of the White House was a Republican. Well, and and because economics is what people really care about, and economics is what Democrats are really bad at. Right. I mean that that is sort of helpful, but uh, here in Texas. What did people care about? What did George W. Bush run on when he was elected? I remember that that campaign, and uh, uh, it seemed like it was going to be closed for a while. Bush was another candidate who was incredibly disciplined, and I would argue between he and Perry on any given day are the best retail politicians I've ever been around. Uh, it was genuine. They liked people. They were accessible. Um, it was a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bush ran a incredibly disciplined campaign focused on four things. And he would talk about the four things, and the press all knew the four things by, by actually pretty early in the campaign. Welfare reform, uh, which include work, work requirements and sort of famously um, uh, requiring people who wanted uh, hunting and fishing licenses to be updated on their child support. Um, that was a big deal in this state, and, mm-hmm. and it actually was good public policy. Uh, tort reform, mm-hmm. uh, continuing to fight back against um, the influence of the plaintiff's bar and the judges who are their friends. Um, crime reduction, uh, juvenile justice was a big issue back then. And then education reform, uh, improving reading scores, um, testing, um, just, just raising the bar on, um, on achievement, um, which really became a hallmark of his whole public career. What he, what he did on that. And how did that shift with Perry? Was it with Perry that we got low, uh, low taxes, reasonable regulation, and keeping the tort reform battle was a long, long battle? Yeah. You know, the difference with Perry was um, Perry had... Of course, he had an incredibly close election in 1998 against John Sharp, which was still, to this day, the most difficult, challenging, exciting campaign I've ever worked on. Two little, Aggies, two yeah. Aggies. And and genuine, you know, former friends and classmates. They were the same year at A&M. Um, you know, Perry mentioned that, you know, he'd been to Sharp's house in Palacios and Sharp had been up in Haskell and they... You know, and they got in some trouble together in New Orleans and on some school <laughs> trips, and uh, it was a real deal. They they've had a most fascinating 
relationship over the years. They're bitter enemies and friends and bitter enemies and friends. I think they're on really good terms right now. Uh-huh. But um, to, to give like you... Like Adams an, and Jefferson. Yeah. To give you an example, or a, a, on election night that year, you know, 10 o'clock news was when the people when the candidates would declare victory and do their rah-rah. So Bush gets up there and does his. We were down 10,000 votes. It wasn't until 1 a.m. that Perry got a call from Sharp that night that he, he, that, um, he was conceding. I looked uh, again this morning. I think Perry had 50.4, 50 50.8% of the vote. Uh, it was really close. Um, Moving ahead to the 2002 campaign, the, Perry had two years as governor before he had to run for re-election. So, when Bush became president, right? So um, it was not a traditional first campaign per se because he had taken office before he had run for that particular office. Mm -hmm. He was governor for two years before he ran for governor. Um, so there's still some introduction to be done. Um, uh, about his background, he wasn't as well known as as uh, as he could have been. So that he he had some outstanding ads uh, on horseback as a as a former um, farmer rancher from from West Texas, um, Air Force pilot, etc. Mm -hmm. um, the education reform was important. Um, property tax relief was important. It was also a uh, there quite a quite a bitter campaign in that Tony Sanchez was the nom Democrat nominee, a very, very wealthy, successful banker and businessman from Laredo. But it turned out that one of the banks that he was involved in had uh, laundered drug money. Mm -hmm. And um, we had, I remember getting phone calls from former DEA agents out of the blue saying, with a lot of information, former bank examiners with a lot of information, and uh, these DEA agents felt like uh, that those funds and those cartels were involved in the murder of Kiki Camarena, who was a DEA agent who was tortured and murdered. Uh, so there are a couple of very well-known ads that Perry ran highlighting that, uh, that created a lot of outrage in the press and uh, certainly from the Sanchez campaign, but were just devastating. So we were outspent that year, probably 80 million to 30 million, and Perry won handily. And and it was, if if I remember, that was the dream team. So it was identity politics. Yeah. The Democrats that were not running on issues. Ron they Kirk. had run, they had run uh, Sanchez, a Hispanic, and Ron Kirk was running for U.S. Senate, right? right. And then, uh, 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 no, the mayor. I don't recall who else was. It may have been Victor Morales. May have been in that. I don't, I don't remember who who was down. But no, yes, it the, was the, the mayor of Austin. Um, oh, Watson. Wa yeah, Kirk for Watson. AG. Yeah, ran yeah. for AG. Was in that. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but I can't remember who they were running for lieutenant governor. Neither can I. Yeah. <laughs> but they lost. But it sounds like they didn't really lose on the issues. Was that Texans? By that time, had they bought into the Perry uh, platform, uh, or was it this? Was it the fact that I mean, you know, drug money is a pretty—that's kind of a deal breaker for voters. 
I think they bought into uh, the Perry and Republican platform. Uh, I think at that point we were still, you know, George, George W. Bush was in the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I should add that um, George H.W. Bush uh, cut an ad for Perry in that. Uh, actually, that was in 98. That was important. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were still. Um, we were still doing well because Bush did well, because Bush at that point was doing well in the White House. Um, Perry had done uh, and laid out some good public policy. He was, that was the year that, um, or the the cycle that he vetoed 82 bills after the 2001 session. The Midnight Massacre. Yeah, that uh, drove the uh, legislature, not just Republic, not just Democrats, but the legislature and the news media batty. And uh, I think a lot of folks inside the bubble here in Austin felt like that was going to be a, a big uh, hit. To what Perry. was his message in doing that? It really was. Uh, so Perry came in without an election. Um, we in, in, engaged with the legislature on a, a myriad of bills, asked them to make changes, tweaks, do this, that and the other. Um, I don't know. You know, sometimes there's an or else and sometimes not. But I think he felt like and certainly the staff felt like that the governor was not getting the the able to get the input and results uh, from the legislature that he wanted. And certainly the governorship warranted. They felt like they could run over him. And the 82 vetoes was a message that you can't run over me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was never really an issue again. He, it, there are some people who argue that Perry really elevated the position of governor in Texas. It had been seen as a weaker position. Yeah. The Constitution defines the lieutenant governors in charge, particularly during the legislative session. Yeah. But uh, Perry, Perry moved around Yeah, by that. the end of his tenure, which was long, you know, he had 14 years, um, I felt like even when I was there as chief of staff in 2011, um, he was in he was in an extremely strong position in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to go overboard and insult anybody over in the in the Pink Building or who was there is there now or was there then, but he was a, a very very strong figure in the Capitol and and nationally. You, you alluded a minute ago to the. Um, uh, the, the stature that he brought to the state, certainly when it comes to economic development and the, um, the extremely bold and sometimes provocative um, trips and comments that he would make about other states. And it, and it really elevated, elevated Texas. And I think we're still seeing that economic success that certainly the public policy uh, of Bush and Perry and others lay the groundwork for. But I feel like Perry's um, personality and bravado and boldness and willing to you know, go to California and go to New York and, and um, put a stick in their eye um, really helped raise the, the, the profile of the state among business leaders, site selectors, and even, even citizens who, like, who, who might have said, I'm not sure 
why I'm living in California anymore if Texas is as good as this guy says it is. And yeah, three um, three hundred people a day. Right. And Perry had the event the same advantage that the lieutenant governor had, which is that he had served in the legislature. Mm -hmm. So he had not only did he have relationships there, but he also understood what it takes to yeah. be a legislator. Yeah. And that's kind of a model that we've lost nationally. You know, it's very hard to get elected president if you've been in the House or yeah. Senate. People just People just uh, yeah. He served in the House for quite some time as a uh, as as a Democrat, and then was a party switcher, and then served one term as lieutenant governor. Mm -hmm. So he had a very good legislative awareness and a, a lot of good friends um, in both chambers. Yeah, and two, uh, two things I feel like I want to make sure that I mentioned before we go on is, of course, Texas Public Policy Foundation was here. Uh, Brooke Rollins who came in and kind of started the the, the second wave, mm -hmm. uh, being policy director right. for Rick Perry, and uh, is, is now policy director for the world, essentially. Mm -hmm. She's uh, no more preeminent expert than she is. So, so TPPF has been here all along. And Governor Abbott has certainly built on that. You know, Texas kind of building off the Sam Houston quote, you know, we may not need the United States, but the United States yeah. needs Texas. I mean, he's, he's certainly built on that with the, the brilliant messaging of sending uh, the uh, illegal mig migrants into the blue cities, letting them see. Yeah, TPF, TPPF was important. And uh, look, I still think most political success uh, goes at, at its foundation is the right policies mm -hmm. and uh, having allies to help develop vet uh, or or even bring new policies to our state that have been worked in other states is really important yeah and tpbf has been a big part of that as as, as other groups have as well but um, we always had a great relationship so we talked about uh tort reform which I, I don't think if people remember that war, uh, if you weren't here during that war, you don't remember how bad the economy was, that we had many, many counties in South Texas that couldn't get doctors right. because the threat of being sued was so high. And you couldn't do business. How that worked with business is you couldn't do business because the plaintiff bar had so much control of the courts, right. so nothing was predictable. And so people were, it's just hard to imagine if you've been living here for, for uh, the 20 years or 25 years since what we're talking about, that businesses were moving out of Texas. Yeah, and, I think that I was reading in, in ahead of this conversation, there was, it may be worth folks going back um, to look at, there was a uh, 60 Minutes expose uh, back in the mid '80s, oh, yeah. I think it was called Justice for Sale. Right. That I don't think 60 Minutes would ever do this now, but <laughs> it, it 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 was extremely helpful to highlight the problem, and it's really what led. Um, you know, some of the first victories were at the Supreme Court um, with Tom Phillips and uh, and uh, the state Supreme Court. Texas Supreme Court, yeah, yeah. Um, and those were largely based on that 60 Minutes expose, and um, Republicans back then were working to put limits on uh, judicial campaign contributions to try to level the playing field, um, and were ultimately successful at that. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, and the Democrats fought that. 
Um, so that's really where it started. But you're right, it had a tremendous cost on business and and our healthcare system. Even in the um, early 2000s, when uh, we passed um, uh, medical malpractice reform mm -hmm. on a constitutional amendment ballot, it was a I worked on that campaign, extremely hard fought. Um, you know, one thing about the plaintiff's lawyers is they're, they're smart, they're crafty, and they tend to have a lot of money and are willing to spend it, mm -hmm. uh, or at least were, um, and, um, and have no particular scruples about what's factual and what's not, and what's, um, you know, the, the, the old um, willing grandma over the cliff type of ads and um, had that campaign gone another week or two, we may not have been successful, but we were. Mm -hmm. And that's you know, medical malpractice reform. Um, if you go back and look at what we campaigned on and what the legislative intent was, it is virtually all come to pass. You know, what we said would happen has happened. And, um, and healthcare and, and patient care and patient access is a lot better as a result. I want to talk to you about the media, but before we move to that, what other successful messages do you think that we have delivered as Republicans that maybe we're not pushing as hard today? Um, when it comes to Well, Texas, let me ask it a little yeah. bit different, too. When did the border become? A prominent every poll I look at, I'm sure every poll you look at, that's the issue. So I was looking back again at the at Perry TV ads from early cycles, and and he had border security ads and was at that point talking about his success getting I think it was a hundred million dollars dedicated to the border. Now we're at, we're what well over four billion. Oh, I think. at least. Um, also, famously during my time. Uh, as Perry's chief of staff, he had he met um, Obama on the tarmac in El Paso when Obama came in, and Perry flew out to be uh, to greet him, and he gave him a letter about border security, and President Obama wouldn't take it. He mm -hmm. pointed to his staffer and just kind of, and the visual on that was appalling. Um, so the the border has been an issue for a long time. It is just obviously gotten shockingly worse. Um, it is mind-boggling to me that the apparently the policy of the Biden administration is to keep the door open and get as many people in as possible. They blame the asylum laws, but there seems to be no interest or effort to address those. Uh, given what we're seeing out of New York and Chicago and uh, even, you know, uh, African-American uh, protests at city council meetings in, in places like Chicago and San Francisco and elsewhere, you would think if there's any issue that Republicans and Democrats could come together on in Washington, it would be doing something about the border, and it's well, not happening. Is it because, and, and you know, we've talked about this for thousands and thousands of hours, the media really didn't begin reporting it until it got to New York and Chicago. Right. They somehow wanted to pretend that we Texans lacked compassion and we just didn't want these people coming in. There were no reports in the Texas press right. 
about what was happening to people in border communities, how they were being overrun, the danger, the, the bodies of migrants coming over. So is that, and is that the difference? And when do you think that, when did they get so bad? They've always been on the other side, but we used to be able to work with them a little bit. Uh, you know, it's 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 true about almost everything up there. So I, I don't know what the answer is in Washington. Um, yeah, I think it would it should start with the president who recognizes the problem and wants to bring people together to fix it. But that hasn't really been the case. Certainly not for the border or hardly any other issue as mm -hmm. well. For someone who ran on his uh, legislative acumen and legislative relationships and wanting to bring people together, it has not happened at all. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right that um, what what cracked the code on media coverage was uh, busing uh, migrants to blue cities. And and who, who would have ever thought that New York City would be complaining about having too many people um, I mean, New York's huge. It should be able to absorb. They've been absorbing immigrants for hundreds of years. Right. Um, it's 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 mind-boggling. But it, it was a brilliant strategy. I, frankly, at the when this first started, I thought it was a little gimmicky. Um, but clearly, it has worked uh, better than just about anything to highlight the problem. And it's it's easy then to go, okay, you look at the population of Chicago and the budget of Chicago or the population of New York and their budget and compare that to Eagle Pass or El Paso. What do you think they're dealing with? If you can't handle it in New York, you know, how's a little little town with a small budget like Eagle Pass deal with it? Right. It's it's interesting that this is an overlay in terms of how people view Texas. You know, USA Today just last month did a piece on Californians moving to Texas, about 300 a day do. And the, the premise of their piece was, is it really better? Is it really better? And they, they were asking people all kinds of questions, and they got all kinds of answers. Yes, it is cheaper to live here. Yes, the schools are better. Yes, I feel like I can speak out. You know, it, yeah. it, it really, uh, really is. I mean, it, 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 even the premise of the question, though, shows the arrogance or detachment of the news media as if people didn't know why they were moving or as if, you know, it was just the, the dumb, unenlightened people who are moving. Mm -hmm. um, it, they, they don't get it. Right, right. Well, what do you think, I mean, we were talking before we started here, uh, we, we've gone now day, what, 20, 15, we still don't have a Speaker of the House in Washington. Uh, we've got uh, a school choice bill that came out of the Senate, school choice, very, very important to Texas Public Policy Foundation, been working on it for 35 years, don't have a bill out of the House yet. What do you think is the difference and what role does the media play in keeping our side divided. The Democrats are not divided. Hakeem Jeff Jeffries, they all voted for him. They've always been more, much more disciplined and uh, and together. Um, I hate the infighting within the party. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's counterproductive. Um, I think it wastes a lot of resources. Um, it, it creates divisions that may never be repairable because things have gotten so kind of personal and nasty. I, I don't understand quite why um, there are is a decent sized swath of Republicans or conservative uh, organizations and and pro, you know, self-proclaimed conservative and Republican leaders who spend all of their time, virtually all their time, attacking other Republicans. Mm -hmm. And you know, it does seem to me that um, the the influence of and the allure of social media has had a lot to do with that. Um, I do wonder sometimes without proof whether there are outside or international forces who are trying to stir the pot on Twitter and, and keep people divided. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Of course, mm -hmm. I have no evidence of that. Um, I would even... I even look at the the change in uh, support for Ukraine as being strange. Someone who came up, um, you know, obviously have the gray hair to prove it, but came up and came into the party during the Reagan administration when you know Russia was really the bad guy, and um, and the, the the domino theory was kind of still in place and. I feel like that if if Russia was is able to take Ukraine, they're they're not stopping. They're going to go to Poland and Moldova and and keep going. But the the attacks on Ukraine from certain having a debate about the proper amount of aid and the oversight of that aid to me is perfectly legitimate. But when you get into um, to attacking the leadership and the integrity of the whole country, I don't quite understand that. Mm -hmm. um, and I do, I do think that uh, it wasn't necessarily your question, but I do think that that the division, the infighting, uh, and the paranoia, and the sort of the rise of um, conspiracy theories, um, largely communicated through social media is really troubling. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's the, one of my favorite quotes is the greatest cost of public life is memory. And I think there's, there's not a lot of memory of you, as you said, particularly among millennials and Gen Z's right. about Russia and that role and, and what's happened in Europe and what could happen in Europe. And, uh, uh, and we've seen it over the last you know, 10 days, Israel, people yeah. not remembering uh, 1967 and our, our role in establishing the state of Israel and why that happened and uh, and not understanding the the most lethal attacks since the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. So that it's, it's, it's a big cost. And that, you know, if you're supporting that, if you're supporting Hamas and what they're doing, you're essentially a genocidal racist right, right. at Stanford and Harvard and in, in these other schools. University of Texas. Yeah. yeah. It's as if the tools that, uh, that you have mastered, Ray, and that we've been working on in terms of uh, word choice and understanding how to define and fight with words, 
that uh, that's all gone to social media, and so other anybody has it, and they they hit with that, and and uh, so uh, we've got a lot you know, of name calling. I do remember back in believe it or not in high school, history teacher uh, hammered home that um, don't trust everything you see and read, and try to go to the source documents, and. I think that's long lost. It's, it, it's partly because it takes time, partly because um, no one seems to believe hardly anything that they read anymore. But also, you know, the, the other, I guess, cost of or ramification of social media is you look at a headline mm -hmm. or a tweet or just a comment, and some people just believe what they read first thing without doing any deeper dive and it's awfully difficult to um even with the right word choice and the right arguments if you only have a sentence or two to make your case it's really difficult yeah well let's take it back and, and as we uh wrap it up here so you we started out when the democrats were in control of everything in texas what do you think they'd have to do to beat us. We've done so much right, as we've discussed. We've created the most prosperous state in the country, a, a, a force. We're a force in the global economy. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's hard to imagine that that the candidates that the Democrats have put up would have a chance against that. But do you see any threat there? I think I always see a threat. Uh, I, I, to answer your question directly, I think it would take um, one statewide seat to start, just like it did with the Republicans, whether it's you know Bill Clements um, or a couple of Supreme Court judges who ran and won on tort, or or Hutchison. Um, it just takes it will take one to to create that uh, foothold to build their organization um, to get support within the state and, and outside the state. And that, that would be, my biggest fear is that they, they snatch one back at some point. Mm -hmm. Now, do I think that's going to happen anytime soon? No, uh, partly because they have no bench. <laughs> um, and you know, I've been hearing literally since I set foot, well, since I was involved in winning Republican campaigns, every cycle, the Democrats are like, this is our year. This is, <laughs> we got the dream team or we got Beto again or, um, and it never happens. Um, now it has ebbed and flowed on those races getting closer. Um, and, and that's part of my, my concern and, um, disappointment about the Republican infighting is um, you're taking you're taking your eye off the ball mm -hmm. um, and if we're beating each other up and having uh, spending a lot of money and time and effort on um, attack and counterattack and and primary campaigns it's going to give the Democrats a little bit more running room a little bit more free reign to to build up their right. organizations and to maybe, you know, and luck has a lot to do with it, um, snatch a race back. Right. 
Right. I think I think the public uh, gets frustrated. We're seeing that they get frustrated with that kind of back and forth. They uh, don't expect much from their elected officials, but they do expect them to do what they are elected I mean, to do. Say, you know, you, you mentioned collective memory. Uh, I do believe, strongly believe, that um, you know, I, was, I frequently think about uh, the other Churchill quote, democracy is the worst form of government except for all others. Mm -hmm. Texas, I think the state legislature and state government here works better than any other place in the country. I think the results have borne that out. I think the fact that we have two-year budget cycles is critically important. The part-time legislature is critically important. Um, government is um, naturally restrained by our the way that we're set up, plus the philosophy of uh, of most of our elected officials. Let's uh, create a, a a place where you've got good schools. You've got um, you know, the, the infrastructure needed, roads, water, electricity, um, a good dose of freedom, and things will take care of the market and individuals will take care of themselves and be successful, and that's proven out. Um, and I just, it does seem like sometimes people forget how well Texas is doing, how well the Texas legislature has done in creating a place where people want to move to and where people can can be incredibly successful. It's it's our nature. We uh, Texas. We always want to make it better. Everybody wants to to run faster, jump higher. But uh, we're so blessed to live here, and yeah. I think we're so blessed in who our opponents are. Right. You know, the really the only relevant question in politics is compared to what. Mm -hmm. And so even in we're in fighting and there's some disarray, we're not them. Right. We're definitely not them. Ray, great to have you come by Thank here, you. Ninth in Congress. Uh, you can subscribe to Ninth in Congress podcast at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Sylvester1630. If you'd like to receive the Ninth in Congress newsletter, sign up at the TPPF website, www.texaspolicy.com slash Ninth in Congress.